0: Section Thirteen of the Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botes. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Two, edited by Charles F. Horn rossiter johnson and john rudd brennus burns rome b c 388 by Bartold georg Niebuhr part two pliny states that previous to the gaelic calamity the census amounted to one hundred and fifty thousand persons which probably refers only to men entitled to vote in the assemblies and does not comprise women, children, slaves, and strangers. If this be correct, the number of citizens was enormous, but it must not be supposed to include the inhabitants of the city only, the population of which was doubtless much smaller. The statement of Diodorus that all men were called to arms to resist the Gauls, and that the number amounted to 40,000, is by no means improbable. According to the testimony of Polybius, Latins and Hernicans also were enlisted. Another account makes the Romans take the field against the Gauls with 24,000 men, that is, with four field legions and four civic legions. The field legions were formed only of plebeians and served, according to the order of the classes, probably in maniples. The civic legions contained all those who belonged neither to the patricians nor to the plebeians, that is, all the aerari, proletari, freedmen, and artisans, who had never before faced an enemy. They were certainly not armed with a pilum, nor drawn up in maniples but used pikes and were employed in phalanxes now as for the field legions each consisted half of latins and half of romans there being in each maniple one century of roman and one of latins there were at that time four legions and as a legion including the reserve troops contained 3,000 men, the total is 12,000. Now, the account which mentions 24,000 men must have presumed that there were four field legions and four irregular civic ones. There would accordingly have been no more than 6,000 plebeians, and even if the legions were all made up of Romans, only 12,000. If in addition to these we take twelve thousand irregular troops and sixteen thousand allies, the number of forty thousand would be completed. In this case, the population of Rome would not have been as large as that of Athens in the Peloponnesian war, and this is indeed very probable. The cavalry is not included in this calculation, but forty thousand must be taken as the maximum of the whole army. There seems to be no exaggeration in this statement, and the battle on the Alia, speaking generally, is an historical event. It is surprising that the Romans did not appoint a dictator to command in the battle. It cannot be said, indeed, that they regarded this war as an ordinary one, for, in that case, they would not have raised so great a force, but they cannot have comprehended the danger in all its greatness. New swarms continue to come across the Alps. The Senons also now appear to seek habitations for themselves. they, like the Germans in after times, demanded land as they found the Insubrians, Boians, and others already settled. The latter had taken up their abode in Umbria, but only until they should find a more extensive and suitable territory. The Romans committed the great mistake of fighting with their hurriedly collected troops, a battle against an enemy who had hitherto been invincible, The hills along which the right wing is said to have been drawn up are no longer discernible, and they were probably nothing but little mounds of earth. At any rate, it was senseless to draw up a long line against the immense mass of enemies. The Gauls, on the other hand, were enabled without any difficulty to turn off to the left. They proceeded to a higher part of the river where it was more easily fordable, and with great prudence threw themselves with all their force upon the right wing, consisting of the civic legions. The latter at first resisted, but not long, and when they fled the whole remaining line, which until then seems to have been useless and inactive, was seized with a panic Terror preceded the Gauls as they laid waste everything on their way, and this paralyzed the courage of the Romans, instead of rousing them to a desperate resistance. The Romans, therefore, were defeated on the Alia in the most inglorious manner. The Gauls had taken them in their rear and cut off their return to Rome. A portion fled toward the Tiber where some effected a retreat across the river, and others were drowned. Another part escaped into the forest. The loss of life must have been prodigious, and it is inconceivable how Livy could have attached so much importance to the mere disgrace. If the Roman army had not been almost annihilated, it would not have been necessary to give up the defense of the city, as was done for the city was left undefeated and deserted by all. Many fled to Veii instead of returning to Rome. Only a few, who had escaped along the high road, entered the city by the Collian Gate. Rome was exhausted, her power shattered, her legions defenseless, and her warlike allies had partly been beaten in the same battle. And were partly awaiting the fearful enemy in their own countries. At Rome it was believed that the whole army was destroyed, for nothing was known of those who had reached Veii. In the city itself there were only old men, women, and children, so that there was no possibility of defending it. It is, however, inconceivable that the gates should have been left open, and that the Gauls, from the fear of a stratagem, should have encamped for several days outside the gates. A more probable account is that the gates were shut and barricaded. We may form a vivid conception of the condition of Rome after this battle, by comparing it with that of Moscow before the conflagration. The people were convinced that a long defense was impossible, since there was probably a want of provisions. Livy gives a false notion of the evacuation of the city, as if the defenseless citizens had remained immovable in their consternation, and only a few had been received into the capital. The determination, in fact, was to defend the capital and the tribune Sulpicius had taken refuge there, with about one thousand men. There was on the capital an ancient well which still exists, and without which the garrison would soon have perished. This well remained unknown to all antiquaries, till I discovered it by means of information gathered from the people who lived there. Its depth in the rock descends to the level of the Tiber, but the water is now not fit to drink. The capital was a rock which had been hewn steep, and thereby made inaccessible, but a clevus closed by gates both below and above, led up from the Forum and the Sacred Way. The rock, indeed, was not so steep as in later times, as is clear from the account of the attempt to storm it, but the capital was nevertheless very strong. Whether some few remained in the city, as at Moscow, who in their stupefaction did not consider what kind of enemy they had before them, cannot be decided. The narrative is very beautiful and reminds us of the taking of the Acropolis of Athens by the Persians, where likewise the old men allowed themselves to be cut down by the persians notwithstanding the improbability of the matter i am inclined to believe that a number of aged patricians their number may not be exactly historical sat down in the forum in their official robes on their curule chairs and that the chief pontiff devoted them to death Such devotions are a well-known Roman custom. It is certainly not improbable that the Gauls were amazed when they found the city deserted, and only those old men sitting immovable, that they took them for statues or supernatural visions, and did nothing to them, until one of them struck a Gaul who touched him, whereupon all were slaughtered. To commit suicide was repugnant to the customs of the Romans, who were guided in many things by feelings more correct and more resembling our own than many other ancient nations. The old men, indeed, had given up the hope of their country being saved, but the capital might be maintained, and the survivors preferred dying in the attempt of self-defense to take in refuge at Veii, where, after all, they could not have maintained themselves in the end. The sacred treasures were removed to Care, and the hope of the Romans now was that the barbarians would be tired of the long siege. Provisions, for a time, had been conveyed to the capital, where a couple of thousand men may have been assembled and where all buildings, temples, as well as public and private houses, were used as habitations. The Gauls made fearful havoc at Rome, even more fearful than the Spaniards and Germans did in the year 1527. Soldiers plunder, and when they find no human beings, they engage in the work of destruction. And fires break out as at moscow without the existence of any intention to cause a conflagration the whole city was changed into a heap of ashes with the exception of a few houses on the palatine which were occupied by the leaders of the gauls it is astonishing to find nevertheless that a few monuments of the preceding period such as statues situated at some distance from the capital are mentioned as having been preserved, but we must remember that Travertino is tolerably fireproof. That Rome was burned down is certain, and when it was rebuilt not even the ancient streets were restored. The Gauls were now encamped in the city. At first they attempted to storm the Clivus, but were repelled with great loss, which is surprising, since we know that at an earlier time the Romans succeeded in storming it against Appius Herdonius. Afterward they discovered the footsteps of a messenger who had been sent from Veii, in order that the state might be taken care of in due form, for the Romans in the capital were patricians and represented the Curies and the government, whereas those assembled at Veii represented the tribes but had no leaders. The latter had resolved to recall Camillus and raise him to the dictatorship. For this reason Pontius Cominius had been sent to Rome to obtain the sanction of the Senate and the Curies. This was quite in the spirit of the ancient times. If the Curies had interdicted him, aqua et Igni, they alone could recall him, if they previously obtained a resolution of the Senate, authorizing them to do so. But if he had gone into voluntary exile and had given up his Roman franchise by becoming a citizen of Ardea, before a sentence had been passed upon him by the centuries it was again in the power of the curies alone he being a patrician to recall him as a citizen and otherwise he could not have become a dictator nor could he have regarded himself as such it was the time of the dog days when the gauls came to rome and as the summer at rome is always pestilential especially during the two months and a half before the first of september the unavoidable consequence must have been as livy relates that the barbarians bivouacking on the ruins of the city in the open air were attacked by disease and carried off like the army of frederick barbarossa when encamped before the castle of saint angelo the whole army of the gauls however was not in the city but only as many as were necessary to blockade the garrison of the capital the rest were scattered far and wide over the face of the country and were ravaging all the unprotected places and isolated farms in latium Many an ancient town, which is no longer mentioned after this time, may have been destroyed by the Gauls. None but fortified places like Ostia, which could obtain supplies by sea, made a successful resistance, for the Gauls were unacquainted with the art of besieging. The Ardeatans, whose territory was likewise invaded by the Gauls, opposed them under the command of camillus the etruscans would seem to have endeavored to avail themselves of the opportunity of recovering veii for we are told that the romans at veii commanded by Cadicius, gained a battle against them and that encouraged by this success they began to entertain a hope of regaining rome since by this victory they got possession of arms a Roman of the name of Fabius D'Orso is said to have offered up, in broad daylight, a Gentilician sacrifice on the Quirinal, and the astonished Gauls are said to have done him no harm, a tradition which is not improbable. The provisions in the Capitol were exhausted, but the Gauls themselves, being seized with epidemic diseases, became tired of their conquests and were not inclined to settle in a country so far away from their own home they once more attempted to take the capital by storm having observed that the messenger from veii had ascended the rock and came down again near the porta carmentalis below araceli the ancient rock is now covered with rubbish and no longer discernible the besieged did not think of a storm on that side. It may be that formerly there had in that part been a wall which had become decayed, and in southern countries, an abundant vegetation always springs up between the stones and If this had actually been neglected, it cannot have been very difficult to climb up. The gulls had already gained a firm footing as there was no wall at the top. The rock which they stormed was not the Tarpeian, but the Arcs. When Manlius, who lived there, was aroused by the screaming of the geese, he came to the spot and thrust down those who were climbing up. This rendered the Gauls still more inclined to commence negotiations. They were, moreover, called back by an inroad of some Alpine tribes into Lombardy where they left their wives and children. They offered to depart if the Romans would pay them a ransom of a thousand pounds of gold, to be taken, no doubt, from the Capitoline treasury. Considering the value of money at that time, the sum was enormous. In the time of Theodosius, indeed, there were people at Rome who possessed several hundredweight of gold. Nay, one is said to have had an annual revenue of 200 weight. There can be no doubt that the Gauls received the sum they demanded and quitted Rome. That in weighing it they scornfully imposed upon the Romans is very possible, and the via Victis too may be true. We ourselves have seen similar things before the year 1813. But there can be no truth in the story told by Livy that while they were disputing Camillus appeared with an army and stopped the proceedings, because the military tribunes had had no right to conclude the treaty. He is there said to have driven the Gauls from the city, and afterward, in a twofold battle, to have so completely defeated them that not even a messenger escaped. Beaufort, inspired by Gaelic patriotism, has most excellently shown what a complete fable this story is. To attempt to disguise the misfortunes of our forefathers by substituting fables in their place is mere childishness. This charge does not affect Livy, indeed, for he copied only what others had written before him. But he did not allow his own conviction to appear as he generally does, for he treats the whole of the early history with a sort of irony, half believing, half disbelieving it. According to another account in Diodorus, the Gauls besieged the town allied with Rome. Its name seems to be miswritten, but is probably intended for Vulcini and the romans relieved it and took back from the gauls the gold which they had paid them but this siege of vulcini is quite unknown to livy a third account in strabo and also mentioned by diodorus does not allow this honor to the romans but states that the cherites pursued the gauls attacked them in the country of the sabines and completely annihilated them In like manner, the Greeks endeavored to disguise the fact that the Gauls took the money from the Delphic treasury, and that in a quite historical period 120. The true explanation is undoubtedly the one found in Polybius that the Gauls were induced to quit Rome by an insurrection of the Alpine tribes after it had experienced the extremity of humiliation. Whatever the enemy had taken as booty was consumed. They had not made any conquests, but only indulged in plunder and devastation. They had been staying at Rome for seven or eight months, and could have gained nothing further than the capital and the very money which they received without taking that fortress. The account of Polybius, throws light upon many discrepant statements and all of them not even excepting livy's fairy tale-like embellishment may be explained by means of it the romans attempted to prove that the gauls had actually been defeated by relating that the gold afterward taken from the gauls and buried in the capital was double the sum paid to them as ransom but it is much more probable that the romans paid their ransom out of the treasury of the temple of the capitoline jupiter and of other temples and that afterward double this sum was made up by a tax which agrees with a statement in the history of manlius that a tax was imposed for the purpose of raising the Gaelic ransom Surely this could not have been done at the time of the siege, when the Romans were scattered in all parts of the country, but must have taken place afterward for the purpose of restoring the money that had been taken. Now, if at a later time there actually existed in the capital such a quantity of gold, it is clear that it was believed to be a proof that the Gauls had not kept the gold which was paid to them even as late as the time of cicero and caesar the spot was shown at rome in the carine where the gauls had heaped up and burned their dead it was called busta gallica which was corrupted in the middle ages into protogallo whence the church which was built there was in reality called St. Andreas in Bustis Gallicis, or, according to the later Latinity, in Busta Gallica, Busta Gallica not being declined. The Gauls departed with their gold, which the Romans had been compelled to pay on account of the famine that prevailed in the capital, which was so great that they pulled the leather from their shields and cooked it, just as was done during the siege of Jerusalem. The Gauls were certainly not destroyed. Justin has preserved the remarkable statement that the same Gauls who sacked Rome went to Apulia, and there offered for money their assistance to the elder Dionysius of Syracuse. From this important statement, it is at any rate clear that they traversed all Italy and then probably returned along the shore of the adriatic their devastations extended over many parts of italy and there is no doubt that the equians received their death blow at that time for henceforth we hear no more of the hostilities of the equians against rome praneste on the other hand which must formerly have been subject to the Equians, now appears as an independent town. The Equians, who inhabited small and easily destructible towns, must have been annihilated during the progress of the Gauls. There is nothing so strange in the history of Livy as his view of the consequences of the Gaelic calamity he must have conceived it as a transitory storm by which rome was humbled but not broken the army according to him was only scattered and the romans appear afterward just as they had been before as if the preceding period had only been an evil dream and as if there had been nothing to do but to rebuild the city But assuredly, the devastation must have been tremendous throughout the Roman territory. For eight months, the barbarians had been ravaging the country. Every trace of cultivation, every farmer's house, all the temples and public buildings were destroyed. The walls of the city had been purposely pulled down. A large number of its inhabitants were led into slavery, the rest were living in great misery at Veii, and what they had saved scarcely sufficed to buy their bread. In this condition they returned to Rome. Camillus, as dictator, is called a second Romulus, and to him is due the glory of not having despaired in those distressing circumstances. End of section 13